Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, what a sight it is indeed to behold you as we have sung, to see clearly in your word just who you are, just how majestic, how awesome, how worthy of our praise. We have made big vows to you tonight. We have said that the riches of this world we will not heed Uh, The praise of this world uh, we will consider empty, uh, that you will be our inheritance. Uh, Big vows. Uh, Father God, we do pray that as we open your word together now, that by your spirit you would so show us your glory, uh, that we would be convicted and fulfill those vows this week. Amen. Please take a seat. Uh, Please uh, turn back into your Bibles uh, to the the reading Alison uh, read for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we continue our journey through uh, this book together. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, we're looking at tonight, page 671. And hopefully uh, inside your service sheets is a sheet that says songs during communion. On the other side of that is a very elaborate and complex uh, outline uh, that you'll see there that will guide you as we go through uh, together. So here we are, uh, about halfway through uh, this series uh, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, you can look at how many chapters there that is and see how good I am at maths. Uh, halfway through what has been a, a pretty hard book in some ways. Ecclesiastes is a hard word. It's not a gentle, it's not uh, uh, necessarily a warm hug week in, week out. Has it, it's not been that way. In fact, uh, we saw in the very first week when we were together in this that whatever life that we imagine we have as we look at this book together, whatever life we think we're living in 2012, Ecclesiastes is like a stiff coffee to wake us from that dream, that dream life that we think we're living, to show us the reality. Ecclesiastes does uh, what we're not prepared to do. It's a lesson from one who has actually stopped this sort of crazy life that we live long enough Uh, To look at life under the sun, as he calls it, life on this sphere, this planet that we all live, look at it honestly and then tell the truth. Now, do you remember the truth? If you flick back to chapter 1, verse 2, you'll see his declaration on all things in this life under the sun. Here is his declaration, having stopped and observed everything, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes has been week in, week out, stripping back uh, life to the very basics. Uh, Step by step, it's stripping back from us the idols that we form in this life, the the things that we treasure, the things that we think are the very foundation of our lives. One by one, they've been stripped back. Our lives as human beings, as workers, as lovers, as accumulators, as searchers of meaning, one by one, he's observed those aspects of life and written over the top of them, Hevel meaningless he's teaching us to look under each of these rocks where we think our treasure is where we find our treasure in this world our purpose our meaning our satisfaction he says look under that rock with me look under there there's nothing there or there or there or there all the different things that we've seen over these weeks you remember them and back in chapter one it was life i guess in all its fullness which in the end he described as an endless pointless cycle uh, rendered uh, inevitably, uh, rendered, uh, br- brought to an end by death itself. 
And then chapter 2, he uh, observed pleasure, the human quest for more pleasure, more joy, more happiness. And there we saw that this human quest for meaning finds only in the intemporary and ultimately meaningless pleasure in all we do. There have been hard things to hear. Then again in chapter 2, he observed work, working life, again rendered meaningless in the end by death. Both the great and the insignificant worker, the, the genius and the dullard, the Steve Jobs and the Steve Nobody all face the same fate and all have all their achievements ripped away from them. And then chapter 3, our sense of control, uh, governing our own life and the times of our life. Uh, there we saw how very little control we have over the times of our life. Uh, times come and go, joy comes and then sadness. We don't control that. And ultimately living comes and then dying. And even in chapter 4 a few weeks ago we saw relationships, this treasure of human life, how good it is to be known by another, to know them as well to be in deep friendship. Uh, but we saw how frustrated relationships are under the sun, often marked with oppression or envy or loneliness or popularism. You see, all the way along, uh, the teacher, as I said, has been stopping life long enough to say, look closely at this. And then he's been telling us the truth about all of these aspects. And if we're prepared to listen, what he's been telling us uh, will echo in our own experience. This is the life we know. He's not talking about another world. He's talking about our world. And so here's my question as I looked at chapter 5 this week. Why? Why, as we're told uh, in Ecclesiastes, has God arranged things like this? This isn't an accident. It's, it's not got out of his control that the world is like this, so frustrating. And why is there nothing new, as he declared in chapter 1? Why can't my experiences of pleasure last? Why is work not enough? Why can't I be in control of the times of my life? And why do relationships hurt so much so often? Why? Why, when uh, the God that we are uh, shown in the Bible uh, made the world to be very good, full of good things, full of new things, full of pleasures, full of satisfying work, full of deep relationships, why is it all now so limited, so frustrated, so, in the end, meaningless? Well, in one sense, we know why. Scripture declares it to us again and again. It is our own sin that has ruined and frustrated this world. Everything in this life is that way because we have disconnected ourselves from the author of life. And disconnect yourself from the author of life and all life becomes disconnected. And so he made it this way in judgment, we're told again and again. Now, Romans 8, perhaps most clearly, says he has subjected this world to futility in judgment. This world is meant to shout to us, this is not okay. It's like one of my favourite movies from the 90s, Grand Canyon. One of the main characters in it, early on in the movie, in a scene, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Everything is supposed to be different. But sewn into Ecclesiastes is the second part of the answer as to why God has arranged our world like this. Yes, it is in judgment. But there is another refrain. I wonder if you've heard it as we've gone along. 
Uh, you hear it perhaps uh, clearly uh, in the chapters we've looked at so far. In uh, chapter 3, verse 14, if you flick back to there, you'll see it there. Why has he arranged the world like this? Why am I so out of control when it comes to the times of my life? Why is all of this so frustrating, so limited? God does it that man should fear him. He'll say it again and again in this book. He'll say it in our passage tonight. He'll conclude the whole book with that, that this is the job of man, to fear God. Why has God subjected the world to frustration? Well, to call us to fear him, to stand in awe of him, to live a life not centred anymore on work or pleasure or human relationships or power, but centred on him. To become so disillusioned by these things that we have made our gods that we will turn from them and turn back to him. To be so disillusioned by life under the sun that we will finally look beyond the sun and see the substantial reality of the one who made all of this. Our God, our creator and the one who will judge every activity under the sun. And so here in these opening verses in chapter 5 is pure gold in my mind. Pure gold of a lesson on how to fear your God, how to live rightly in a frustrating world, how to stand in awe of him as you live under the sun, to fear him and not man, to fear your God and not your career aspirations, to fear him and not powerlessness, to fear him and not lack of relationships, to learn again to view God as big and these things as small. And the passage will end with this simple command, verse 7, stand in awe of God. And along the way, we're going to be given three keys on how we do that, three ways that we are to stand in awe of God. They are very simple. You'll see it on on your outline there. Guard your steps, listen, and fulfill your vow. Let's look at them uh, together in just a moment. But just as we do, I want you to have a picture in your head as we look at these three aspects of standing in awe of God, a a picture that I suspect will be easier for the the females here to have in their head than the males, but I'm going to encourage the males to get over that and uh, work with me. This is a biblical picture and it's not my picture. I want you to picture your life like this. I want you to picture your life as the walk down the aisle as a bride attending a wedding. It's your wedding, you're the bride, Uh, you've just turned the corner down there, and you're walking down the aisle. I want you to picture life like that. Three aspects. Firstly, it is the most careful walk you will ever take. Every step is measured, every step rehearsed, every step very carefully taken. Secondly, you are listening intently as that walk is happening to the music that is playing. It is filling the room, and that is setting the tune for you. That is telling you when to step. And thirdly, you're looking forward to that moment when you finally reach the front and you get to exchange vows with the one you love. So that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. And as we're uh, having that picture in your mind, if you're wondering whether you should be having it in your mind or not, let me say if you're a Christian here tonight, which is the majority of us, you need to have it in your mind because this is how to live before your God under the sun. And if you're here tonight and uh, perhaps you're a guest with someone or you're not a believer, you do not have a relationship with, with the God I am describing, with the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me say to you, this too is how to live, for he is your God. He made you. And so let's begin. How to live in the presence of God. How to approach, verse 1, we're told, the house of God where he dwells. The place where he dwells with us. 
When this uh, passage was written, it's in the Old Testament context where the place where God dwells, the house of God, was the temple of God in Jerusalem. The place uh, where relationship with uh, God and his people was maintained. You went there to worship him, to offer sacrifices, to find forgiveness of sins, to give thanks for his provision. That's where that relationship was maintained. That's where you worshipped him. But in the New Testament, we have the wonderful the wonderful story of the gospel. As Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he conquers death. We have the wonderful moment when he dies on the cross and the temple court curtain is torn into and we're told at that moment, the scriptures tell us, no longer is that the place where God meets with his people, but in Jesus. To meet with God, you come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Every place is now sacred. Not one place on top of one hill in this world, but every place You come to him in faith and you find yourself in relationship to God. And we're told in uh, John chapter 14, it says, those who come to him in faith, God will come and make his home in them. Uh, God's house is in you. And 1 Corinthians confirms it as well. It says, the very spirit of God lives in you. Your body is the temple. And so wherever you go in this world under the sun, wherever you walk, wherever you speak, wherever you think, wherever you relate, that is the place to worship God. So it's amazing, isn't it? All of life is now weighted with the opportunity to either honour God or dishonour him. And so how do you do it? How do you live worshipfully worshipfully in awe of this God? Well, here's the first first key. Guard your steps. You see it there in verse 1? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, you remember the picture, don't you? A bride walking down the aisle. The, the one, uh, she's walking to the one that she's going to be bound to for life, the one she loves. You take great care as you walk. I, I love rehearsals at weddings. Uh, we, wedding rehearsals should take about five minutes, but they take much longer than that because of this walk. This is the bit that is practised uh, over and over again until the steps are worked out perfectly in time with the music. But the moment itself, the moment itself is filled with such joy, uh, no longer worrying about uh, whether the steps are, are right or not. They're, they've been practised, they've been carefully measured. And each step is joyful. Let me ask you this. As you walk as a Christian, uh, do you view life like that? Each step joyful, but each step as the main event, you before your God, each step significant to him. It's so hard to keep that focus when all around life is pulling us in different directions. So we're sort of staggering down the aisle, moved in different directions rather than to him. One of the uh, simple instructions I give uh, the bride on the day of a wedding is just before they come around that corner is, it's very simple, just aim for him. <laughs> and that's the Christian life, very simple, aim for him, every step. And here's the first lesson in living under the sun, aim for your love, your God, Jesus. Pay attention to the direction of your feet as you walk, for they dictate the direction of your life. Each aspect of your life, each step, is it taken in worship to him? Imagine a life like that. Imagine a life where each step you took declared that he was your treasure, nothing else. Imagine setting off for work tomorrow and and planning each step before you took it. Plotting to revere him, whatever happened that day, uh, whether it be in response to unexpected things, holding loosely to your career if you're a worker so that you view it as a gift, not, not life itself, because he's that. Imagine waking tomorrow and as you blush, brush your teeth, uh, 
plotting for good in your relationships, sitting there brushing your teeth, thinking about the relationships you're going to have that day and carefully plotting for good in them. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's what the bride does. Each step, I'm going to take this one and then this one. They think carefully about each one. Imagine waking tomorrow and as the alarm goes off, reminding yourself that you are not the king of your time, that he is and that whatever comes that day, you will walk in a way that declares that he is your treasure. Whether that day be yet another banal day or a day that if you knew it was coming now, it was going to be filled with such sadness, it would floor you. But you are prepared to walk in a way that will please him. Imagine not measuring your life by the pleasures you've had that day or the achievements you've made, but by the steps you've taken that pleased your God. Because that's what the procession does for the groom. That's the other part of this picture, the groom standing here grinning like a crazy fool as his bride walks down the aisle. That's your God. He delights in every step, every step. Imagine his view now of your typical day under the sun. As we stagger around fooled again and again by the idols that we've made and love more than him. Now, what would your betrothed, your Jesus, make of your steps this past week? Have they been guarded? Or are you going through the motions? It's possible, isn't it, that we can offer worship or, as Romans 12 calls it, your spiritual sacrifice in response to what God has done in Jesus for you. It's possible to offer worship that is utterly foolish, our passage says. Foolish in the sense that we've stopped watching our steps. We don't even realise that we've stopped uh, worshipping long ago. We've wandered off in another direction altogether. Ecclesiastes says, guard your steps, each one of them. Realise what you are doing this week as you head out on Monday morning. You are walking before the God of the universe. He's watching. And this ain't the rehearsal. So this week, guard your steps. And as a, as, as a start to this, as a as sort of a start point in guarding your steps, examine the steps you took to come here tonight, to this gathering, uh, to worship here. No, it's not the sum total of worship. All of life is our worship sphere, but this is not insignificant, is it? In fact, let me put it to you this way. I reckon this gathering, this hour and 15 minutes, if you're lucky, uh, is a test ground for the steps you'll take throughout the week. It's a bit like uh, when you go to the shoe shop I don't know whether you still do this. Kids do this. I still do it. Maybe I should grow out of that. But when you get a new pair of shoes, you've got to sort of try them on. You've got to walk back and forward in John Lewis, back and forward until you're sure that they're comfortable. Because if they're awkward in the shop, what are they going to be like in the real world when that real tests and trials come? Well, it's the same with your Christian life. If you struggle to worship him here, what chance do you have in a world where everything is stacked against you? So let's speak of the steps you took to be here tonight. Consider the way you prepared to worship him tonight. Is prepared the right word? You know, you go to a football game. In, in Australia, I, I haven't been to many football games here, but in Australia I went to many Aussie rules games. And what I did, the very first thing I do when I get through is to buy what was called the football record that would tell you who was going to play in the game and uh, all sorts of stats about them. And you'd, you'd plot and plan what was going to happen in the day and which, game, which players you were going to follow. Everything was anticipated. Let me ask you, did you anticipate much tonight? Uh, We prayed a confession earlier. It wasn't really a shock, was it? We do it most weeks. Had you thought about it before? The sort of things that were weighing heavy on you from this week that needed to be brought before the Lord. 
It's the third Sunday. Uh, every third Sunday in the evening, it's communion. Again, not really a shock. Are you ready to come forward to this table? Have you prepared your heart? Are you reconciled with your brothers and sisters? All too often, I think we, we can squeeze worship into this hour and 15 minutes, which we come to five to ten minutes late anyway. And then the next thing is uh, there's no real preparation of heart anyway. And did you read the passage before you came? Did you come here expecting to be a different person when you left, changed by your God? Did you come here expecting to encourage someone else? Did you watch your steps? And so extrapolate from the rarefied atmosphere of a Sunday night gathering to the week ahead. Now what chances are your steps going to be more careful this week if you can't guard them here in 1% of your week? And that's if you stay around for 45 minutes. Truth is our walk is meant to be very different. We should be, as a church family, in the ministry of silly walks. Ecclesiastes 5 calls for the bridal procession to the bus stop tomorrow. With the family at work, at the surgery, waiting for the test result, at the pub, at the gravesite, in front of the computer, everywhere. We are meant to walk differently. We are meant to look out of step with the spirit of this world because we are in step with the spirit of our God. Which brings us to the second key to living in awe of God and the answer to how it is that we can guard our steps. Because here's the wonderful thing. Our God promises to guard them for us. It's one of my favourite and most treasured promises in, in all of his word to us. He says to us at the end of Jude, he will keep us from falling. And so how does he do it? How does God guard our steps? Verse 1 again. Go near to listen. It's obvious, isn't it? Remember our picture again, the bride walking down the aisle, taking care how they walk. How do they do it? Well, it's the music, isn't it, that calls the tune for them. It's the music that says, next step, next step. And the same is true for us, but for this. And this is remarkable. What calls the tune for us, our steps, is a voice. Not some overdone wedding march, but the voice of the God who made this world. The voice of Jesus speaking to you as you walk. Each step he's calling, follow me. Worship, living in awe of God, is an all-of-life activity, but right at the heart of it, central to it, is the act of listening. Listening to the voice of your God. It is the only thing that overcomes my folly under the sun. Listening and heeding the voice of my God. We listen because, verse 1, without listening, our worship will be foolishly ignorant of what pleases him. We end up formulating our idea of worship in all of life uh, around what pleases us. But when we listen, when we do that, we stop playing games and we respond with obedience and faithfulness. And we listen, verse 2, because it acknowledges the difference between you and God. He is in heaven. You are on earth. So hold your mouth and heart quiet before him. Do more listening than speaking or thinking. Behold the significance of the moment when the word of God is heard as it was just before when Alison read it. Here is the one from beyond the sun who made and rules and will judge all of life and he is speaking to you. We listen, verse 3, because it is better than filling our days, we're told, with, than with endless dreaming. Much dreaming, we're told about in the passage. Much plotting for the better life. Much plotting for a change of circumstances. 
Dreams come, we're told, when there's an abundance of cares, an abundance of business, when we're busy plotting that new life, that better life, that changed life. Now, let me ask you, how much of your day is spent uh, plotting that, dreaming of something else? The if-only dream. If only we had more time. If only I wasn't so lonely. If only life got easier for once. If only we could afford to dot, dot, dot. If only they'd known how important studying for the A-levels really was. If only things were like they used to be. If only, if only, if only what? God says to you in this passage, instead of endless dreams of the better life, start listening. You see, the problem with dreams is this. They're rubbish, fanciful. I don't know about your dreams, but most of my dreams are so out there, it's obvious that they're rubbish. But in normal life, we think that dreams are real, don't we? We want to play the game that we can fix life under the sun. We plot how we're going to fix it rather than being honest that we are not in control. We're like a three-year-old dressed up as a superhero who really thinks they can fly despite gravity's repeated reminders that they can't. That's why we find, I think, listening to Ecclesiastes so hard. God is dismantling what we hold precious and think is strong, but it's vapour. What we need if we are to walk rightly is not more dreams but the word of our God, the word of his grace that can teach us to walk in awe of him, that can keep us from falling, the word not of life under the sun, but of eternal life. And so go near to listen. And only then is it time for the third key, which is this, fulfill your vow. You see where we've reached now in our picture? We're at the front of the procession face to face with our God, for that is what our word, the word of God does. It brings us face to face before our God, listening to him as he speaks his vow, as he makes his promises to us over and over again. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's his vow. Now we are told not to be hasty with our lips or heart, but now it's time, verse 4, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. You see what happens when we listen to God? As he speaks to us, as the Spirit of God works through that word, it prompts response. It calls for a response. When his word in a sermon or in a small group or on the lips of a brother or sister or when you're alone reading it comes to us, it calls response. you ever had that feeling? I hope you have that feeling a lot calling for confession, calling for repentance, when his word puts a finger on a stubborn sin or a behaviour or attitude, whatever it might be, calling you to repent, calling for change perhaps, or assuring you of your identity in Jesus, calling you to walk in light of that, or filling you with a vision of his promised future rather than the one you're building for yourself. These are the moments when God is saying, step this way, this way to life to the full. But all too often our hearts say yes, and we vow big, this week will change, this week is the week, this week is the week I'm going to stop that sin, this week is the week I'm going to start believing that who I am in Christ Jesus. We promise that. But we're full of good intentions, but we're not great at delivering on them, not great at following through, because it's never a great time to change, is it? It's never the right time to repent. It always feels like it would be better next week, easier next week when I'm over this other thing. Hard to believe I am who I really am in Jesus. I don't feel like that. 
Hard to see God's promised future under the sun. And so too often we stay put. And then we moan about life under the sun being so frustrating when God has beckoned us to life to the full long ago. Ecclesiastes says, instead of making a vow, just listen and obey. God is a God of relationship. He is a God of covenant commitment. As you stand there face to face with him in his word, let me ask you, does he ever fail to come through on his promises, his vows to you? He promises very big and he delivers. You see, what we dream and what we actually do are two very different things, aren't they? And so Ecclesiastes says, watch your step. Listen and then fulfill your vow. As we close, let me say, in the end, I think all of this comes down to a simple question. How you view God and how you view yourself. All too easily, our vision of God grows small while our vision of ourselves and our life under the sun grows very, very big. Life under the sun is huge, isn't it? It's immense, it's complex, it's busy, it's stressful. Uh, This sphere, this uh, earth that we live on with billions of other people, it seems so certain to us. This is what life is about. This is as big as life gets. We can't see beyond it. And so we live as this is as big as it gets. And when life under the sun comes up short of all we dreamed of, when life under the sun falls apart or frustrates us or breaks our heart, we think the answer must lie still here under the sun with us. But here's the thing. God has ordained all of life under the sun to lead us to the place where all our plans, all our words, all our dreams, all our powers have reached their limit well short of the mark. He has designed the frustrating vanities that we experience in this world, the groans of this world, to wake us from our dream. To see that in the end, all this, all this will fail us. But he remains. Till we get to the point where we can say, all I have is him. And to know that's enough. This life under the sun, this desert life, as Adam Juritz of the Counting Crows calls it, is designed to do for us what God promised to do with his people in Hosea. This is what he promised them, this unfaithful people wandering down the aisle, constantly going this way and that. He says, I will lead them out into the desert until they finally grow tired of themselves, until she finally grows tired of her other lovers, until she reaches the point, and then when she's out of all of those things, I will speak to her, speak tender words to her. That's what God is doing with us under the sun. Friends, this is not our home. This is the desert. And he'll keep talking to us until we stop drinking the sand and reach for him. And as you live under the sun, God says this simply to you. Pay attention to your feet. Each step, draw near to listen. I have not abandoned you. I am with you. Jesus, the one true God, the awesome God, the one for whom, by whom, and through whom, and in whom all things hold together, loves you with an unyielding love. That's his vow, and he's fulfilled it. He's come amongst us. He's not far away, distant, but here under the sun with us he was. He lived and died for your sins. Stand in awe of him. He rose and conquered death, so stand in awe of him. He ascended, king of all. Stand in awe of him. He is your shield and your great reward. Nothing else is, so stand in awe of him. 
He will hold all to account, so stand in awe of him. And he is making all things new, so stand in awe of him. I am in heaven, your God says. You are on earth, so speak less words. Dream less self-determined dreams. No more futile plans. No more vapor building. These things are not your treasure. I am. So walk. Listen. Listen. I am making all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how easy it is to uh, view the week ahead of us as huge on our horizon and you and your part in our lives are so very small, just an hour or so each week. Father, reverse that for us. Uh, Fill our vision uh, with how awesome you are, how good you are to us. Uh, Teach us to walk and be guided by the very sound of your voice. Uh, Teach us to trust that voice will lead us to life and life to the full. And Father, when your word calls upon us to respond with faithfulness, uh, give us the courage and the perseverance to do that. And do that for our good and for your glory. Amen.